Hello, and welcome back to the ChemTalk podcast. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Helmut Kolfin, a professor of chemistry at University Constance. Dr. Kolfin earned his PhD in chemistry at University Duisburg and currently researches crystallization and materials. We hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Olivia from ChemTalk, and I'm a current senior at the University of Richmond studying chemistry. And today we're talking with Helmut Kolfin. And would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Thank you. So I'm Helmut Kolfen. I'm professor of physical chemistry at the university in Konstanz. That's at the very south of Germany, very close to Switzerland. And I'm doing this job since 2010. And before that, I was at the Max Planck Institute of Colloids and Interfaces in Potsdam. And I worked there for 16 years. Wow committed to your universities that you work at, working there for a long time, which is great. Mm -hmm. So just to start, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and how you got to where you are now? Right. So I studied chemistry at the University of Duisburg, the Mercator University of Duisburg. Duisburg is basically part of the biggest city in Germany, the Ruhrgebiet. This is a big industrial area. And this book is just at the very western part of it. So um, a town which is basically steel and coal or has been steel and coal and the factories closed down meanwhile. But nevertheless, they have a big university there. And uh, that's the university where I studied chemistry. So I did my um, diploma at these days, which is equivalent to the master degree, and then followed by a PhD degree. And I did that already in physical chemistry. And these days I was working with an instrument called analytical ultrasound fuge, a thing which spins very fast and you can look at it at the sample um, while being centrifuged and you record the movement of that sample and conclude on the physical chemistry uh, properties of that sample. And after the PhD, I went to England, to Nottingham. Basically, you know it from the Robin Hood books. And went to the university there. Did a postdoc um, at the National Center of Hydrodynamics. And that was also based on analytical ultracentrifugation. But there, I worked on biopolymers. And I was looking at interactions between proteins, or proteins and polysaccharides, so between large molecules, and trying to find out if they are interacting, how they are interacting, and that's important research to basically understand diseases, action of drugs, and so forth. So that was the biological world. And from there, I went to the Max Planck Institute of College and Interfaces to Potsdam, so back to Germany, and then finally to Konstanz. Great. That's awesome. So um, you talked a little bit about the various, you know, physical chemistry research you involved in with the centrifuge and everything like that. Um, But I know your research is a little bit different now. So how did you transition from that type of research to the more research about like crystalline systems and what you're currently researching? Right. It's basically a quite funny story. So I I started at the Max Planck Institute and I was employed as a, as a group leader. And my main task was building up an ultra centrifuge laboratory. 
And so I had a talk to the director, Marcus Antonietti, when I started. And he said, yeah, I know you're great doing analytical ultracentrifugation, and that's why you're employed to build up the lab. But I want you to do something synthetic because you're an analytic, analytical person. And so go to the library for a week and then look up if you find something which is interesting for you. And then you come back, but it must be something synthetic. And then, Oops, <laughs> what is this? So I went to the library and was looking at different journals. And then I found um, some very attractive pictures, images of biominerals in some journals. And that attracted my attention. So reading, I was reading more about that. And I found that very fascinating. Biominerals are these minerals uh, which living organisms form, like our bones or teeth. And then I went back and told my boss, look, I would like to work on biomineralization and ideally try to mimic that um, for synthetic systems. And then maybe um, one is able to do advanced materials. So that's how I transitioned a bit to crystallization. Wow, that's awesome. So with your current research, are you still focusing on the bio basis of it or have you focused to the more synthetic and material side? Um, nowadays, we focus more on the material side, so bio-inspired mineralization mainly, but we still do um, little research on biominerals. So our favorite biominerals are or have been uh, initially uh, the um, seashells, mussel shells, nacre, and stuff like that. And also sea urchin spines, they attract us also a lot, a lot, although most people probably remember them more badly if they yeah. ever walked on one, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> they have a fascinating structure and there's lots you can learn. And uh, more recently, we also study uh, bones and teeth a bit. That's awesome. So how do you study these things do you have to get samples like do you have to get samples of human bones and teeth or are you just replicating what is already known in the literature and things like that right um part part so initially we started with original samples of seashells of sea urchins and uh, with the bone and teeth um, we started um, to work with hospitals so we work um, or cooperate with a dental hospital in marburg with a dental hospital in berlin Charité. And um, these guys are experts. So if you work with the dentist, um, they already know most about teeth. So right. basically, we don't need to re-explore the thing and, and just try to cooperate. But nevertheless, um, also at conferences, we talk to the colleagues um, who are working actively working on the structure of bone, structure of teeth, and then take that knowledge and try to transfer that to synthetic materials. Right. So what is the application of your research? There, there are, uh, it really depends on the material you are working on. But let's stay with the bio-inspired materials. So um, they have medical applications. So that's bone or teeth related materials. Obvious that uh, you go for medical applications. So um, for example, we um, developed a bone implant coating, which has a bone layer, a bone layer, which mimics the natural bone and the cells recognize it as real bone and connect this implant much faster to the existing bone than any other material like titanium or 
Polyita Itake tone. So that's one thing which is bio-inspired and went into a medical application. And the other one is um, two filling materials. So this painful procedure when you have these dental barriers and the dentist has to drill holes. And um, there, there's two options. Um, we are working on one solution that we treat the caries already before the caries develops that the hole needs to be drilled. So if you only have micrometer sized holes in your teeth, the dentist can already recognize that. And the idea then is that you fill this hole with a liquid precursor, which solidifies and gives you calcium phosphate, basically, which is the substance of your tooth. So that the hole is closed before the caries can further progress, that you need to uh, get a hole drilled in your tooth. But in case um, you already have this developed caries and the dentist needs to drill, then um, worldwide, um, still amalgam is used very often. And this is critical if you think about it, it's containing mercury. So um, although it has nice material properties, you don't want the mercury to leach out because that's, that's toxic and poisonous. So ideally would be you replace the amalgam. But the wow. problem is that amalgam is very cheap. So, yeah. and it has nice materials properties. So then dentists still tend to use it. So the task was to replace amalgam by something which just uses the substances which are in the original tooth, but which is hopefully as cheap as the amalgam is. Yeah. So that you can get rid of the amalgam and the dentist would use the alternative. <clears throat> we, in the end, um, developed a, a paste, a dental paste, which basically um, the consistency of the paste can be determined by the dentist um, via the addition of water. If you add more water, it's more liquid-like, or if you add less water, it's more paste-like, so that the dentist can use this um, to fill your hole in the teeth. And this is just based on calcium phosphate, which is the substance our teeth are composed of. Um, the outside, the animal, 99.8% or something. So it's a majority of the tooth is composed of calcium phosphate. But the inner of the tooth also contains collagen, the dentin inside of the tooth. And um, we used also... Uh, derivative of collagen, which is gelatin, you know, more from the food, right? Hey. You make a pudding, <laughs> right? And th that's the sort of stuff we were using uh, for the reason that collagen is um, expensive and also not well water soluble. And gelatin is well, very well water soluble. So uh, that's why we use this. And um, we also developed a new calcium phosphate cement because the problem um, of the initial material was when you mix it together and it starts to harden, it shrinks in the volume. Mm -hmm. And that's very bad for tooth filling because then you have a gap between the tooth and the filling and the caries starts again. And then we added a hydraulic cement based on calcium phosphate. And when that comes into contact with water, it expands. And now the task was just mixing the two components in a ratio that the volume just stays constant. And oh. when you use this, you can get a nice filling for the teeth. And it does not have or not yet have the hardness of the animal, which is our outer tooth material, yeah. but it already outperforms the dentin. So we are still working on it to make it harder so that, that we can finally use it just 
uh, to fill the teeth and the material has the same properties like the original tooth and it's composed of the materials the tooth is composed of. That's what is important to us. Wow, that's awesome. You know, I've never really thought about the different applications of how you could have physical chemistry and especially crystalline structures impact, you know, the biology. And I mean, that makes so much sense with tooth and bones or what you're doing with creating something that's very similar to the tooth. That's really cool. And especially with the problems with mercury, that would be you know best yeah. to avoid that. Furthering with your crystalline system. So you just talked a lot about, you know, the bio side of it. So could you mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about the material side of it? Oh yeah, sure. Very happy to. So um, let's take a sea urchin, a sea urchin uh, spike. And uh, these guys are very uh, fracture resistant because they are protective element of the sea urchin, obviously. Yeah. So if you ever walked on one, it didn't break, but uh, you get it into your feet and okay. that, that's painful, right? Uh, but for the sea urchin, it's obviously um, very important because if that element would break, the sea urchin would be eaten by a predator. And then it would basically disappear on the long term from the evolutionary landscape. So those guys who don't have fracture resistant spines um, basically won't survive. That, that's an essential element. So um, we thought, okay, so if they don't break, although they are almost exclusively made out of calcium carbonate, which is chalk essentially, and you know how, how brittle chalk is. You can break it easily in the classroom, a piece of chalk, click, and then it's broken. And if you take a sea urchin's spicule or spine, then it's very hard to break. So it, the secret is in the structure. And if you look at that structure and you go down from the macro scale, then the microscopic scale, then on the microscopic scale, the sea urchin's spine looks like a sponge. and it does not have any uh, flat crystal faces, which you know from a crystal. So normally a crystal has nice faces. We find them beautiful. Mm -hmm. they, they look very organized. But this looks like a sponge in the kitchen or in the bathroom, right? That, that's the structure of a sea urchin spine if you look at it with a microscope. And if you further look with a higher magnification, you find that all of that is made of little bricks of calcium carbonate, of chalk, on a nanometer scale, and that's glued together the crystalline bricks by some amorphous mortar. It's like building a brick wall, if you wish so. You have, you have these bricks and they add hardness to the material. And then you have the mortar to glue all that stuff together and then you have a brick wall. Right. And that's the principal nature is using in several of these biominerals. And then we thought, okay, we have a hierarchical structure. It starts at a nanometer scale, so very tiny particles. And they are organized and glued together by something amorphous. And if you look at a crystal, a crystal is hard, but brittle usually. So right. you can break a crystal very easily if you let it fall from a higher height onto a surface, then most of them can break into tiny pieces, but it's hard. And on the other hand, if you have something amorphous or soft, then it can be ductile and you cannot break it. So take, take something rubber, that, that could be an example for it. If, if you have a rubber, then that's not hard at all, but you can't break it, hardly break it. You can stretch it and it takes up a lot of energy, but it, it does hardly break. So now if you combine two of these materials, 
then you get something which is better than the sum of their components. So you have a hard material and it's fracture resistant, and that's already encoded on a nanoscale. And then it's building up a hierarchical structure with all the pores, make this material lightweight and without compromising um, the mechanical properties. So that's something we also use in our bone. They are also porous, same strategy, make them lightweight without compromising mechanics. So we thought, okay, we take this nanoscale um, structuring principle and adapt it and transform it to cement. And that's one building material we use most, I think, Behind water, it's the second most used material by humans. Wow. So it's worldwide. It's a huge use of cement. So, right. concrete and cement for all the buildings. We are surrounded by cement and concrete, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem of concrete is that it has a high so called compressive strength. That means you can put a lot of pressure on it, it won't break. But if you bend it, then it's very brittle and it cracks easily. And you perhaps have seen that if you have older buildings, they have little cracks, then water gets in and the cracks get larger and then the uh, concrete corrodes. And that's a problem for civil engineering. If you have bridges, they are older and then they start to get unstable and they need to be closed and rebuilt. And that has a huge impact. So okay. we thought, can that problem be tackled by that sea urchin structure? Mm -hmm. So we took cement and cement are little platelets on a nanoscale, very thin, two nanometers or so. And we found a macromolecule which was able to just recognize the flat side of these cement platelets and then was gluing them to the next cement plate. And that way they started to get an order plate on plate, like in the sea urchin spy, like uh, the brick wall. And the mortar was this macromolecule, which is soft and ductile, and the cement platelets are hard and brittle. So we have that principle, hard and brittle plus soft and ductile. And then we um, let the material just react by itself, and overnight it self-assembled to some uh, jelly uh, components, some jelly material. And when we dried that, we got some cement pieces. They were only small because... We had a lot of water evaporating and that caused cracks in the material. But when we looked at the mechanics of these cement pieces, then um, it was possible to bend it. So we used a micro manipulator and bended it and we could bend it and then it moved back to the original position. That means um, elastic deformation. So all the energy you put in while bending the material came back. And if right. you transfer that to a building, that would mean you have a building and then you have an earthquake and then yeah. some energy is put into the building. So it might shake, but it will come back to its original position, which is good and does not stay deformed. Yeah. Right. And the mechanics of that material was in the end similar to NACRE, which is a sort of gold standard of a fracture-resistant tough biomineral. So. Wow. Um, if you would be able to build buildings with these mechanical properties, then you don't need so much structural steel anymore, save that, don't have the corrosion problems associated to the steel, but still have the same mechanics. You might be able to build thinner buildings because you use less concrete, that way produce less CO2, 
because that's also a problem when you um, produce concrete, you need to burn calcium carbonate and that produces a lot of CO2. And um, by heating, it costs a lot of energy too. So that's not nice and people want to get rid of that as yeah. much as possible. So this bio-inspired um, material has all these nice properties by self-assembly in water at ambient temperature, just like nature is building the crystalline materials. And I think that's a great deal of nice chemistry, green chemistry we can learn of because um, we save all the heat, all the energy, which is so expensive nowadays. Oh, so that that would just yeah. be great, right? Right. And the only reason why we couldn't um, scale that up is that this particular polymer was expensive. So mm -hmm. cement has to be very cheap. So it was more an academic example, but it showed that in principle, you can make fracture resistant cement, which can bend and has really good mechanical properties. Wow, that's awesome. That's something that when thinking about chemistry research, I mean, I personally wouldn't think about researching about cement and researching about sea urchins and their connection to cement. And it's just amazing that there can be these connections that are, you know, in nature that we can transform to our use. And I think that's really interesting um, and really cool that your lab and was able to come up with that and think about that. Furthering a little bit more on your research, what do you think is the most difficult part about it? Well, it's um, probably the understanding, really to, to understand the mechanism, how all that is working. Let's say I just stay with the biomineral archetypes. So if you look at this and you see, okay, beautiful function in nature and you try to mimic that, but that's not always straightforward because for that you need to understand how nature is doing the job. So how does it work? And that can be very, very complex. If you have a hierarchical structure, you might have different hierarchy levels at different sizes, which all have different mechanisms. So you first need to fully understand that. And we find that very difficult and you need to cooperate with colleagues and go to the conferences to learn as much right. as you can about these materials. And um, then the second part is the translation that's probably not so difficult. I think the mechanisms are the most difficult. Right. And sometimes if you try to find out really the mechanisms, then uh, you get surprises. Then sometimes um, you can't use the knowledge which is reported in textbooks anymore, but mm -hmm. you have to find out what is really going on. Right. And you just know this is not in the textbook. So you, you're leaving the textbook knowledge here right. and have to find out what, what is going on. That is also very difficult. Yeah, I can see that. Specifically with the textbooks, our professors have told us multiple times, you know, in general chemistry, the textbook says this, but in real life, this is not true. But for the purpose of this course, it's going to be true. So, you know, in that I feel like with research, you really have to step outside of that. But I can see how that can be difficult because even I'm in an organic synthesis lab and I don't even know the mechanisms of some of the reactions that I do. And, you know, it's, I think determining the mechanism of how a reaction occurs is something especially difficult since, you know, we can't see it. We just have to try our best to determine it in not straightforward ways. Absolutely agree. So just going back to your background and everything, I was wondering if you remember what first sparked your interest in chemistry or the chemistry related field. 
Um, I know you said you studied it at university, but did you have a moment or anything before that that sparked your interest? Yes. Actually, I started as a little boy, try to remember the age, maybe nine or ten or so. And I was was fascinated me in chemistry are the colors or um, making yeah something smoke or some nice effects little bombs or something right. which makes boom yeah <laughs> that that um, was my initial interest in chemistry and then my parents got me chemistry kit um so yeah. a kit where you have the chemicals and, and you could do your own experiments and these days when i was a young boy that's long ago so the safety regulations weren't of the standard of today. Right. <laughs> and they had really cool chemicals in there where, where you could do really effectful experiments, I would say. So yeah. that, that really something smoked or something was burning with all fascinating colors you can think of. And all this, these things I loved a lot. And then I thought, oh, that's a real cool science. So I also asked at school, um, if we can do chemistry on top of the normal lessons. And uh, then there were a few more and the, we had a good teacher and that teacher allowed us in the afternoon to do experiments at school. And that was nice for us because they had even cooler chemicals than right. we had toolkits, right? So that fascinated me a lot. And that was my interest in chemistry. And then I lost it temporarily when I was at the army. So you think about different things there. Right. And then after the army, um, I had to think, okay, what do you want to do with your life? And then I remembered, okay, that that was the thing which fascinated me most. So I should study chemistry. And that's what I did finally. That's awesome. So when you started studying chemistry, did you know that you wanted to be a professor or was that kind of just the path that you followed? Yeah, the, the second is true. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I went to the Max Planck, basically I did analytical ultracentrifugation for a long time. So I built up the lab there and I was really interested in that physical chemistry with the centrifuge. And um, then I started with the crystallization, as I mentioned earlier, and started to build up a small group. And these days, um, I had two laboratories, one for the centrifuge business and the other one for the crystallization business. And at some co-workers, so the group size increased to six to eight people, something like that, small group. And um, then I worked with them and that was really nice, but I never thought to be a professor and I couldn't get a professor position at a Max Planck Institute because that's a research institute. So uh, the directors are professors, of course, but they direct the department, but the group leaders there are no professors. Um, typically, most of them do that for five years and then try to get a professorship at a university. Mm -hmm. But I had a permanent position, which was nice, a lifetime position. So I thought, mm -hmm. oh, it's really cool because that institute was well equipped. I could do everything I wanted to do. So I couldn't think of leaving the institute. And that worked well for 16 years. And then, I don't know, perhaps it was a midlife crisis or whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, hmm, I should perhaps do something completely different. So although we had the best conditions you can think of, so there was nothing to complain. And I had a really good time there. I thought, oh, but 
you could do something different. And I thought, why not going to university? Yeah. And um, that's then when I changed and then got the professorship. So in the meantime, I had um, so much research done. I forgot to mention that, that I could do my habilitation. This means that's a qualification I needed at that time to become a professor. Mm -hmm. But that didn't change my job. I just had, just had that qualification and I could use it to teach at Potsdam University, give, gave some courses there. That was nice uh, to get in touch with the students. But I stayed at the Max Planck for all the time, the 16 years. And then only then I thought, okay, I applied to university and then finally changed to Constance, which is really a nice place, very beautiful place and a small university. So it has only 11,000 students. And I never regretted to have changed. The life is completely different there. Um, you're much more exposed to the students. You have perhaps a little less time for research because you do a lot of teaching yeah. then, but that's very rewarding. So I like teaching a lot and still you can do research. So that, that's still fine. So I'm also feeling very happy now. So that's a different way of life, scientific life. So I had both, maybe a nice research institute and now a university. Yeah, that's great. You really got the opportunity for both. And do you find that it's rewarding to help teach the students and work with them? And is something that you relatively enjoy? Definitely it is. So I, I like to work with the students and especially here in Constance, it's a small university. So I typically know my students and vice versa. So um, we have this open door policy. I leave the door of my office open and whenever they have a question, they come by and ask you. And that, that's a really nice relation. And it, it's nice to see their development. If you teach them over several courses over the years, then you see their development. And maybe you had them in a bachelor course, third semester or so, and you right. see them back in one of your master courses and say, oh, wow, cool. This is a really smart student now. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's because, nice to see. Yeah, you see your students grow and having them for with a small institution, you have that ability to watch them from a very general course to a very specified course over the years. And I'm sure it's exciting for you when you see a student that starts at maybe a more general level and then starts to become interested in the same things that you're interested in. Right. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And it's always a great feeling if someone is asking, oh, can I do a bachelor work with you or master work? So that means uh, you somehow have attractive, uh, attracted them and that they want to find out more about this work. And that, that's just great. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. So within your lab, do you have bachelor and master students? Mm -hmm. And okay. PhD and postdocs okay. and your research group leaders. So all levels. That's great. So do you get to experience a lot of different collaboration with the students or do you feel like your students provide a lot of different perspectives because they're from all different levels of their education? Yeah, de uh, definitely they do. Uh, so the bachelor students um, I have least interaction with because they typically work with one of the PhD students. So I just have maybe a few discussions with them. Um, but with the master students, um, there's much more interactions or, uh, interaction already because um, they, they come more often with questions and they are there for a longer time, at least six months. So six months is the normal duration and some can extend to nine months if something didn't 
work as expected or so. And you get to know them much better. And that, that's also rewarding um, because very often they already have really cool ideas. So they, they have own developments in there, which are really cool. And then if you go further to the PhD students, so they are expected to be somehow already more independent. Of course, they can come whenever they have questions, they come. But uh, some of them work for several weeks or so without guidance. And then they come back and present maybe in the group seminar, a little presentation about their recent work. And you say, oh, wow, that's cool. And that's something which the student, um, him or herself has developed. Oh. And that, that's just great. And you see them, their project developing, putting in own ideas, giving it a little bit of their own touch as well, which, which I like a lot. And then you have at last, uh, that's the highest level or second highest level, the postdoctoral researchers. They have, of course, lots of experience and you can almost let them free floating if they are smart. So you introduce them into a cool topic and then they start to work. And then they come back uh, when they have something together to discuss it with you and say, look, the last two months I've been working on this and that and this and that came out. So can we discuss this? And that's, that's also nice because they have a lot of cool ideas and then one merges maybe our experience with the experience of the postdoctoral researcher and that gives a unique profile to that person. And at the highest level, um, I'm working with two junior research group leaders which are or who are just associated to our group. So they are having their own little groups and they are formally independent, but I just act as a mentor. So we are just talking about the very general ideas and then the rest they do, all the supervision and all that. And that's also rewarding on the highest level then. So it's really nice to have all these different levels in the same work group. Right, exactly. Because you can really have a lot of different viewpoints. And like you said, people add their own touch to the project or just look at it from a slightly different perspective that maybe you didn't think about before. And mm -hmm. even someone with um, a younger perspective might think about something based in their other general courses that you may not have while people from the older perspective or the more um, educated in their chemistry might have that more technical sense and bringing those two together can often make it something brand new, which is great. So with being working at a, um, a university now and being a professor, you said that, you know, you don't do as much work with the research. So do you find that that is something that you miss? Or do you think that because you had so much time in the research world before as um, at the institution that, you know, it's okay to move on to something different? I think it was okay because I still have enough time to do research. I just do less myself, I would say. Like um, if you work with the two junior researchers, for example, they have their own subgroup. So they, they do a lot of research with little input needed from myself or with the postdoctoral researchers. So that, that's um, nice. And that compensates a little bit for um, less time being spent with research. But still, um, I would say... Yeah, probably half of my time I still spent with research. So that's still a good amount. And I'm still right. very happy doing yeah. this research. So it's it's the best of both worlds. And 
I'm, I'm happy that I have both the, the teaching because there you also learn sometimes from the questions of the students or so, whom, which make you think, ah, okay, I haven't thought about this from that perspective. And you have the research, which you can perhaps at least parts of it bring into your lectures to give the students some examples for applications. So like when teaching physical chemistry, that can be sometimes very mathematical. And if you can bring in some examples, which are from the applied world, that makes it more understandable. So what it's about. Yeah, no, that's great. And I completely agree. I find that in my courses, when professors talk about either their research or just how it actually is relating to what is going on in the world, it makes it so much easier to understand than just like yeah. a mathematical equation on the board and, you know, just trusting that it makes sense. But when you can see it and how it applies to other areas of chemistry and other areas of things in the world, it makes it so much easier to understand. So I'm sure that perspective is, is awesome. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I wanted to ask you what your biggest accomplishment you think in your career thus far is, whether that's in your research or just in your life. If I have to name just one, um, then probably it was the discovery of the so-called pre-nucleation clusters together with my PhD student. Um, that's, that's something which was not in the textbook so far, but which turns out to have quite an impact on different research directions. I maybe briefly explain what they are. It sounds a bit academic, pre-nucleation clusters, right? So <clears throat> when, when you have a solution or melt and you want to develop a crystal or a solid body from it, then you typically change the concentration in your solution or you change the temperature in your melt, you cool it down perhaps, and then eventually some crystals may evolve or in the solution, you might also cool down. Um, so you, you play a little bit with the concentration there, and then it turns from one phase, the solution or melt, into two phases where you still have a surrounding solution and melt and a crystal. And that transition is called nucleation. That's basically the birth of a crystal or amorphous body, a birth of a second phase. And essentially the textbook says, okay, um, you have a classical nucleation theory, which people developed 90 years ago. So that's quite a long time. And already Gibbs thought about that in 1870 something. So if yeah. you just think of thermodynamics, even Gibbs was thinking how to explain this, because that's a really important process. If you think about environment, a raindrop is nucleated from... Right moist air, right, or snowflake and things like that. So nucleation, you find it in everyday's life or the bubbles in your soda, they are nucleated too and, and many things are nucleated. Yeah. So um, the classical theory just says, okay, I have a surface which is created because I create a second phase and that creates also a bulk of this body and both is related with energies the surface costs you energy, the bike brings you energy, and they play together. And the system always tries to minimize the energy. And that's what's driving nucleation. Okay. And then um, I had a PhD student um, who is now also a professor of physical chemistry. And um, he came 
And we wanted to look how nacre grows under the microscope and wanted to understand how that grows and when it crystallizes and wanted to measure everything we could measure online next to the microscope images. So um, his first task was to get a um, so-called titration machine, which is able to uh, set up a solution composition very precisely, adding solution um, with a defined amount per time, and then measure values like a pH, a conductivity, temperature, concentration of ions like calcium, and, and so forth. And then he found, when measuring the concentration of calcium, that he always had less calcium in the solution than he added. And he was forming calcium and carbonate to get calcium carbonate. And then we thought, okay, maybe um, um, your solution, you steer in CO2 from the air or something like that, and that changes your balance or so. So do it under nitrogen. Okay, you did it under nitrogen. No, the calcium is still missing. Okay, then perhaps the pH is varying and not constant. So try to record the constant pH. Okay, he did that. Okay, no, still the calcium is missing. Titato. So we worked on that for several uh, weeks. And I always sent him back to the lab and say, okay, maybe this is not working, that is not working. But in the end, I also had no idea anymore. And then we put that solution where the calcium was missing into an analytical ultracentrifuge and we're spinning it at very high speed. And if you spin it at the highest speed, you can generate fields which are about 250,000 fold gravitational acceleration. This is very high. This is enough to separate uh, let little ions like salt, sodium chloride or so, you can sediment it slowly overnight, not completely, but it will sediment. So it's a really high force. And what we then found was that we had ions as expected, calcium and carbonate, but there was also something larger with a size of about one to two nanometer. And we termed this clusters pre-nucleation clusters. So they contained the missing calcium, which you could not measure by the calcium electrode because they were basically no calcium ions on which yeah. the electrode is sensitive. And that was the explanation for the missing calcium. And then it turned out that these clusters are always there, even if you have apparently only a calcium solution, a calcium carbonate solution. Mm -hmm. And that has important consequences on the nucleation because you don't need to create a so-called supersaturation that something nucleates, but you can already have these clusters in the undersaturated solution. And then when you make more and more of these by increasing the concentration, then they can eventually form liquid droplets, which is also very di different from a crystal. And these liquid droplets can kick out more water and then they can solidify to something amorphous. And that amorphous stuff can then finally crystallize. So we have a multi-step crystallization process rather than a one-step, which is in the textbook. And that had drastic consequences. And I just uh, named two recent ones, which um, are research of the last year, essentially, and just published. And the first one was that uh, we just took the calcium carbonate clusters which contain a lot of water associated to it and added some gadolinium together with a Chinese um, corporation partner. And the gadolinium is very good for um, nuclear magnetic contrast. So if you do um, tomography for MRT, for example, magnetic resonance tomography, 
the doctors try to visualize your organic tissue. And for right. this, you get a contrast agent to make the contrast, enhance the contrast. But they are not, not particularly good. And after we added this gadolinium to the clusters, they were in a very water or are in a very water-rich environment. And that increases the contrast by a factor. And when we injected this into mice or um, dogs or so and put them into an MRT in a hospital in China, animal hospital, then um, the, the organs had a much higher contrast with less contrast agent. And oh. the contrast agent, the gadolinium is not healthy. That's why you have to drink a lot after an MRT session. Right. And if you need less of that and get a better contrast, that's even better. And that works because we have these clusters of calcium carbonate, but they just incorporate the gadolinium. And then you have a lot of water around the gadolinium and that makes a terrific um, MRT contrast. That's one thing. And the other one is also related to medicine. And we found out um, ibuprofen was one object of our study. That's something, a drug which is a painkiller. If you have headaches or so, you you eventually take ibuprofen and we looked at that and found out hey this also has these clusters and that that was a bit unexpected and then we thought mm, that that's perhaps nice um, if calcium carbonate the clusters can make a liquid maybe we can also take the clusters in ibuprofen and make liquid ibuprofen and it worked and um, wow. that's of course nice because if you think of the tablet if you have headaches you would like to get rid of the pain as quickly as possible. But um, if you take the tablet, that's the normal ibuprofen is hardly water soluble. So the tablet has to dissolve in your stomach and then that's a slow process. And then it has to get into the blood and then to the place where your pain is originating. And if you have this liquid one, then that will dissolve much quicker because it's a liquid. Right. It does not need to dissolve anymore. And we looked at further drugs, and it seems to also occur with other drugs. So we had, um, what's that, diclofenac. I think that's also a painkiller that, that also had these liquid precursors. And uh, we looked at Febuxtat recently that also has these precursors. And we think now that perhaps this is much more general, and it would be pretty cool for pharmaceutics, because then you could make liquid drugs rather than solid tablets, which um, basically act much faster than the solid counterparts would do. So all that is a consequence of that random discovery of these prenucleation clusters, yeah. right? which were not in the textbooks, but turn out to be particularly useful to do new things, which we at least didn't think of before. Right. Wow. That is very, very cool. And especially it's, it is funny that the stories start, you know, you're just looking for this missing calcium. Where is the calcium going? You know, you're trying so hard just to find where it went and has just a consequence that is so unexpected, but is so great. And I'm, I can understand how that could be your biggest accomplishment because that's something so exciting and something that, you know, is very useful, especially for medication and the pharmaceutical industry. And like you said, you know, fast acting, that is something very, very cool from just a, a random discovery, which is awesome. Right. Yeah, definitely. Right. So just uh, one final question that I want to ask you is, 
you know, you have had a lot of experience with research and chemistry and being a professor and everything like that. So what advice would you give to any students who would want to go into chemistry? Well, keep, basically keep the motivation. So sometimes you go to a lot of downs. So already in the studies, sometimes it's really tough to get through. So chemistry studies, I think that's true worldwide, are not the most easiest one. You have to spend a lot of time with the lectures and then in the lab. And um, sometimes you might lose the motivation, never lose it because chemistry is a really nice science and it's worth to do it. And later on, when you work in the lab, maybe as a PhD student, master student or so, there may might be um, setbacks or things might simply not work as you have expected. But nevertheless, uh, don't get demotivated. Always keep the optimism and work on it. Like this example with the missing calcium showed us we were rewarded for being persistent and trying to find out what was going on there. And then in the end, some great discovery came out. Sometimes, of course, no great discovery comes out of things which don't work. They simply don't work. Right. But <laughs> you might find a nice way around and that, that might be even an optimized synthesis. You find something like that, which is then most rewarding, an easier way to produce something or so. So typically, I think you get rewarded if you're working hard, stay optimistic and keep your fascination for chemistry. I'm sure you will be rewarded, not only once. That is great advice. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed hearing about your research and just about you. And um, thank you for taking the time out of your day today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the ChemTalk podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on today's episode and countless chemistry resources, please visit our website at www.chemistrytalk.org.